Our, our, our astronomers have not yet found and never will find the ends of this universe because it keeps expanding. And all of that is your creation. The billions and billions of years, of light years that some of these are away from us. And, and yet you've also created it down to the finest little subatomic particle that we're just beginning to discover how they work. And all of this was created by you. And we were created by you. And you know the beginning of our lives and you know the end. You know everything that's in between. And as Jesus said when he appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos, he is the almighty God. And so, Father, we come tonight to begin to learn more about you, your character, your nature, as you relate to our own personal lives and our own personal needs, especially in this area of physical healing. And so, Father, tonight we rely upon the Holy Spirit. We rely upon Him to open the eyes of our understanding, to help sweep away the cobwebs of things we've learned before and have forgotten about. We ask you to move away the, the blocks that are in our heart, in our mind, from doctrines and things we've been taught before and, the, and the, the understanding of man that blocks us from the revelation of God. And Father, we ask you tonight by the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, most of all, with how much you love us and what your compassion is. And so to do that, we rely upon your Spirit and your Word, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The thing that God has been dealing with me about over several years, dealing is too strong a word, opening my eyes to see over the last several years, and it really happened in a, in a prayer meeting that we did, uh, were part of a kind of a, an area prayer meeting we did a few years ago over at New Hope Fellowship down here on Route 6, David Pastor Therian's church. And, uh, and I was assigned a, a particular area to lead a prayer over, and it came out of Acts chapter 4, and we'll look at it in just a minute. And what I realized in this is how much healing is part of the gospel. And we don't teach it that way. We, do, we, we haven't done, taught, I haven't taught on healing in a long time. And I just feel, because like, I've been spending a lot of time in it, that it was something we needed to go back and look at because it is, it is important as Christians, that we understand what the Bible says about healing. First of all, for ourselves, so we learn to depend more on God than we do on our science and on our doctors. I'm grateful for our doctors. I'm grateful for our scientists. We have some doctors that are part of this church and wonderful people, and they all, we all, they all want the same result. So as we'll begin to see tonight, God wants us to bring us to another level where we learn to trust Him for everything we need. And he'll meet us where we are, but he doesn't want us to be content with where we are. And that's too easy to do. And the second part of it is God wants to minister this grace of healing through us to other people. And if we go through this study, we'll begin to see how important that is of a method that God's, God ordained for the communication of the gospel. Gospel just means the good news, and it's the good news of how much God loves us and how He's proven that love for what He's done for us in Christ Jesus. So tonight we're just going to kind of introduce this subject. So I want to start out in John chapter 14. Jesus is in His final discussions with His disciples. And He says this in John 14, if you can put that up there. He said, Most assuredly... I say to you that he who believes in me, 
So he's not just limiting this to these 12 or the 11 or so all that's left now, disciples. He's talking to, the, to all of us that believe in him. The works that I do will he do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. So what are these works that he did that we are to be doing? Well, Jesus was a great teacher, and obviously he gave his life for us. But if you look at his life, his ministry, there are true predominant things that Jesus did. Not just things he said, but things he did. Works are things he did. One of them was to teach, and equally was to heal the sick. We'll talk about this as we go forward, but one of the, one of the, the, the teachings that is done in, in certain denominations, in what I was ingrained in me, and maybe in most of you, was that Jesus performed these healings to prove who He was. But in order to believe that, you can't have really read the Bible because, or, and think, because there are a number of cases where Jesus healed someone and then told them not to tell anybody. So if he was healing people to prove who he was, why would he tell people not to tell anyone? Well, there's only one other reason I can think of if he was using those healings to prove who he was, is he was going to use reverse psychology. Because what happened is, everybody he told not to tell went right out and announced it. But if Jesus were using reverse psychology, then he's really not speaking truth. And Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 7 that when God deals with us, he is straightforward. He uses the example that if you as a father, if your son comes to you and asks you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a stone. Or if he asks you for a fish, you're not going to play games with him and give him a snake. And he goes on to say, if you being evil as fathers, compared to his father, know how to give good gifts to your children, or what's asked, how much more will your heavenly father give what's good to those that ask him? So Jesus doesn't play games with people. He is the truth. So he can't have done it as reverse psychology. The main reason I believe Jesus told people not to tell anybody is Jesus was constantly having a crowd control problem and it would get in his way. He would go to places and the new word got there that he was in the area and he would be surrounded with crowds. And so I believe Jesus was telling people not to tell anybody because he was trying to keep the crowds down to manageable size. The second reason Jesus didn't heal people to prove who he was is that he didn't, all he would need to do was a few dramatic healings. He wouldn't need to heal everybody. And as we go through this study, we will realize that there's Jesus healed everyone that came to him and asked, and a few that didn't come to him and ask that he healed. Third reason that it's Jesus didn't heal everybody, that he healed people to prove who he was, is, is when we look at, and we'll look at this tonight, when he went to his own hometown, it says he could not heal them because of their unbelief. So, so we're going to move on with the assumption that the works that Jesus did, some of the works that Jesus did at least, was healing the sick. 
And he's telling his disciples that what your commission is to do includes doing what I did for people. Another basis of that, and they're not going to have that up there because they didn't give them the scripture, the very first verse of Acts, the, the, the book of Acts, talks about it. It's a very subtle verse, so if you don't pick it up, but this is, he says, uh, Luke who wrote that said, said, and all that Jesus began to do in his earthly ministry. Well, when you say somebody began to do something, that implies it's not finished yet. And the book of the apostles is the story of how the apostles continued the work that Jesus did. And a large part of what they did was heal the sick. And we'll see a little more of that in just a minute. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. This is part of the Great Commission. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the what? The gospel, the good news to every creature. That's our Great Commission. Verse 16. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Verse 17. These signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. Don't need to go doing that. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So part of the commission given to the church is to lay hands on the sick and they will recover. The one, this is Acts chapter 4. This is the verse that really opened my eyes to convince me that the ministry, this is the ministry of the church. Acts chapter 4. Now, the background here is what's happened is uh, uh, Peter and John have just healed the man at the gate beautiful. One of the very first things they did, we have a record of, is they, they, they went to the, the gate beautiful of the temple, and there's this man, I'm sure you know the story, the man begging alms of them. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I don't have to give you, but I do have something to give you. What he had to give them was what was given to him, which was the name of Jesus. And he said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And they grabbed him and he stood up and walked. People gathered around and they wanted to call him gods. And he said, no, it's not by our piety, but it was by faith in the name of Jesus that raised this man up. Well, now it creates a fervor and the, the, the authorities arrest them and bring them in and threaten them to not preach anymore in that name. And then they release them. While they're in prison, their own people were gathering in, they didn't have a church like this, they were gathering in wherever they met and they were praying. Now Peter and John have been released and come back and told them that they've been threatened, they can do anything they want, but you can't do it in this name that shows you how powerful the name of Jesus is. So now what they've done is they've come together. When they were in trouble, they came together and had a prayer meeting. When we get in trouble, we protest. So they came together and had a prayer meeting, and this was part of their prayer. Now notice, I'll talk in a minute, what they didn't pray for. They just recited the threats that they've been made against them, and they say, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you've anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. That's talking about the crucifixion. Verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness 
we may speak your word. Now stop there a second. Go back. Stay on that verse. Notice what they don't ask for. They don't ask for deliverance. They don't ask for protection. What they were so consumed with the, with the passion that they were given to spread the word that they're praying that this threat doesn't deter their boldness and that God gives them boldness to proclaim your word. Now, the next verse is what really opened my eyes. So, no, stay here a second. So, it's boldness to proclaim His Word. Everybody at Faith Christian Center, I'm sure, would believe with that. We're here to preach and proclaim His Word. But notice verse 30. How? By stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31. And when they prayed, where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word with boldness. So they understood that a major part of spreading the word was by stretching out his hand to heal through them. When Jesus was on the earth, he stretched out his hand to heal. And now through the body of Christ, which is you and me, the commission is the same, to stretch out his hands, which is what we are, so that through us, he can minister that same healing that he did when he walked on the earth. Well, if Jesus didn't heal people to prove who he was, why did he heal people? Well, in a number of cases, it says why he healed them. It says Jesus moved with compassion. Jesus came in his earthly ministry in large part to demonstrate what our Heavenly Father is like, what His character is, what His will is. Jesus said, and we're going to go through these in the future. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. It says in Hebrews that He is the exact representation of His nature and the outshining of His glory. Colossians says He's the exact image of God. First, uh, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians four four says he is the image of God. There are a whole bunch of scriptures we'll go through that basically say the same thing. Jesus came, and if you want to know what God's like, His character, His nature, His will, Jesus is saying, all you've got to do is look at Me. In fact, earlier in this chapter we started in, Jesus says, if you've seen, they want to know. Well, well, show us the Father. I think it was Philip that said, Jesus said, don't you know if you've seen Me? You've seen the Father. So the question is, if the world sees the church, are we seeing the Father? So Jesus came, His healing people was to demonstrate, I think, two basic things. God is real. And what He's like. He loves us and He cares about us. And we'll see in a minute. He not just cares about your soul, He cares about every aspect of your life. And we're in a world right now 
We're living in a world that looks at the church and pretty much dismisses us because they have trouble believing that the God we talk about is real and He cares about them. We're also living in a world where people are hurting and dying and in all kinds of bondage and all kinds of desperate need for deliverance. And this is the most amazing opportunity, most amazing opportune time for God to demonstrate His love and His compassion, and it is real, but He can only do that through the church. So we're going to look at why, why, some of why we're not experiencing that today. So healing is a very important subject, not just to understand, but to have integrated into our lives because it reveals God's character and nature in a very tangible way. Because most of the world and a lot of the church believes that God's way up there somewhere. Oh yes, He loves us, but He loves us from a distance. He's a distant God. And, and how can this God who supposedly loves us let all this terrible stuff go on? How can God let innocent people die from a disease like COVID? How can God let these wars... How can God let injustice like this go on? How can God let people, children being shot in school... How can this God let that happen? So they interpret what God's like from the things that they see through their own thinking and they're looking at God as distant. And so this all just fits into the image that they have about God. Well, God was not a distant God when He walked on the earth in Jesus. He went out where the people were. He touched them. He touched lepers and healed them. And so Jesus needs His body in the earth today to reflect that compassion and the reality of God's caring for us. But we need a little bit of background to understand how did the church get, how did we get to where we are today? In order to do that, you have to understand that how, where the church is now and where the church was in earlier times, let alone in the New Testament times. We've got to step back and look at how our world, how our, how the, our theology sees God. God sees man, the Bible teaches us, as the whole entire being that He created man. And we've talked about this before. God created man as a spirit, a soul, and a body. Three parts. Some teach two, but at least there's more than one. The Bible teaches that, that, that it takes three parts of us to make us whole. I had a, a number of my law partners when I was in the law practice. A lot of them were Jewish, but I had several of them that were serious, devout, committed Jews. And I got, would get into some wonderful discussions with them about some of these issues. And I'm saying, how are you trained that God sees us? Does He see you as a spirit and a body, or a soul and a body, or does He see you as one? He said, no, no, you understand. In Hebrew, whole means whole. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. Suppose you go to buy a car. Somebody goes to buy a used car, or I guess they call them pre-owned now. You go to buy a pre-owned car. I love that because that means the original buyer did you a favor and broke it in for you because the car was really intended for you. That's how we spin things today. And you go and you look at the car on the showroom or out in the, in the dealer's lot, and you, you negotiate a price and say, okay, 
here's the money, I'll come back and the car will be all set for me, I'll come back tomorrow. And when you come back tomorrow, there's this beautiful car all shined up, but it's sitting on cinder blocks, there's no wheels there. I said, well, wait wait a minute, (laughs) I bought the car. Yeah, well, there it is. But where are the wheels? Oh, you wanted wheels. They're extra. Now, we would never settle for that. Because that's not a car if it's not whole. If you start picking it apart in terms of pieces and buy the pieces, you're not getting the whole car. That's what happened when the church started getting influenced by the Greek philosophers. Because the Greeks had a very different worldview. The Greeks were, it was all mental, none of it was spiritual. They would break everything down into its component parts. That's why the Greek, the, the Greek language that the New Testament is written in is, is a very powerful language for communicating things because it breaks things like the word, like love, the word love down into five different Greek words that have very different meanings where we have one word that covers all five of those. So the Greeks were divided a human being in their concept of them into a physical body and into a soul, which was the real part of who you were. And the church, as it developed and grew, incorporated that kind of thinking into their theology. And then the, the thinking came in, which was part of it was some from some of the Greek teachings, was that, that if God is divine and holy, that He cannot create something that's not holy. And so man began to think, and this is what happens when man thinks on his own, that somehow the human body, because it is temporary, and because it comes from the earth, and when it decays it will return to the earth, that somehow that was not part of God's holy creation. And then that shifted into this thinking was that therefore our body is not as important to God as our soul and our spirit because they are eternal. And that kind of thinking began to create this, this, this approach to healing that God, yeah, God does heal because we know God heals because we know people that have been healed by God, but, but it's not that important to God because it's just kind of a condition of being a human being in the world today. There's just sickness here. People are going to get sick. Some people are going to die from it. And yes, God may intervene at sometimes for whatever reason He does and to heal. Well, God has been able all, and I don't have time to go through it tonight, all through the history of the church, there have been people, there have been groups that have believed that healing was part of the gospel and what, and what Christ came to do, not just when He walked on the earth, but also that the church was to do, that healing was part of God's will. And, it, and we'll talk about this later. And it, it, it really revolves around the issue when Christ was crucified on that cross, when He was beaten at the whipping post, and when He was crucified on the cross, did that cover more than just the forgiveness of our sins? Did that also include the healing of our bodies? And the the argument against that is, in the thinking against that is, well, you can't compare sin 
with sickness because sickness has to do with our bodies and that's just temporary so therefore it's not as important to God but our soul and our spirit which are eternal they're obviously precious to God and so God would send His Son to die for us to redeem that part of us and that's the thinking and the theology of much of the denominational churches today and then some non-denominational churches today So that's kind of the background of where we are right now. And part of what feeds into this is our experience. Because we we don't see the majority of people healed. We've had healing lines here and seen people healed. I've seen blind eyes open. I've heard deaf ears unstopped. But by and large, we're not seeing a lot of healings. And so what man tends to do, and we're going to look at this tonight is we tend to figure out what God's will is and what God's like by the experience that we have. And that's totally unscriptural. God does not reveal what He's like by the experiences we have. Because that leaves out a number of factors that are affecting the results. First of all, it completely leaves out Satan and his opposition. Secondly, it leaves out you and me and anything we need to contribute to it. So let's look at some stories that kind of, kind of give us a better, better understanding of this. But if you just look at the results, if you see the results of people that are, you may have prayed for that didn't get healed. We had a major example of that earlier this year, our dear brother Denny. The whole church, was, most of the church was praying for him and we didn't get the result that we wanted. So do we conclude with that that it was not God's will to heal Denny? All of you, I'm sure, have had the experience of praying for somebody and they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't healed and maybe for yourself and you weren't healed. Do we conclude from that that it was not, that it was not God's God's will. But you can't know God's will by the results. You can only know God's will by the vehicle that God gave us to communicate to us what He's like, and that's this Word. So let's go to a couple stories to kind of give us a a taste of this. Matthew 17. Now the background here is Jesus has, the beginning of this chapter is Jesus has just called Peter, James, and John to go with him up on a mountain. And they go up there, they were singled out, and they go up on the mountain with him. And he, he tells them to wait here on the side. And he goes over, and in a few minutes, or how, I don't know how long it was, suddenly he's transformed. The word used is transfigured. He begins to change in front of their eyes, and he starts glowing with this light. His clothes are like, like a fuller's, like, like a bleached clothes in the bright sun day. It is suddenly, God was revealing his glory coming out of him. And then Moses and Elijah appear with him. And Peter's freaking out. He thinks, wow, this is, this is, this is it. He wants to build three little huts to, to preserve the situation. And while Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, God speaks audibly out of heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And then Elijah and Moses disappears, and Jesus comes back into the into the human body, in the human appearance that he's had all throughout his life. And then he comes over and Peter wants to build a church out of this experience. 
And Jesus said, no, let's go. They go down the hill. They go down the mountain. And we're going to pick up with what Jesus runs into when he comes down, when he comes down the mountain. Verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came up to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, he suffers severely, he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Verse 16. So I brought him to your disciples, but look at this, but they could not cure him. Let me go back there a second. So this man watching his son suffer, has hope because he's heard that Jesus and his disciples here. So he brings them, and Jesus isn't there right now. He's up on the mountain with his executive team. So he brings them to the disciples, and the disciples do whatever they do to try to deliver this boy, and they failed. Their prayer was not answered. But the disciples could not cure him. Verse 17. Look what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, well, I guess if they didn't get their prayer answered, it must not be God's will to heal him. I'm sorry. Sometimes God heals and sometimes God doesn't. No. Jesus answered and said, look at this. Oh, faithless and perverse generation. You can hear the frustration that must have been in his voice. And he's not frustrated. He's frustrated with his disciples. How long shall I be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? Jesus was real. He had emotions. How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that hour. Verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. Now, in Mark's version of this, there's another little interlude. In Mark's version of this, the Father says to him, If you can, heal my son. Jesus' answer is this, If I can, all things are possible to him who believe. So, the father now upset because the disciples couldn't, they, they didn't get the results that they prayed for, now comes to Jesus frustrated, says, they couldn't, I don't know if you can, and Jesus puts things right by saying, the issue isn't whether I can, the issue is what can you believe? And then the father answered by where most of us are, I believe, but help my unbelief. He believed enough to bring the son to Jesus And now he was challenged with a degree of his faith and he's asking for help to make up the difference. That's what happened in between. So after this whole scene, everybody's gone away, the disciples came to Jesus privately. By now they'd learned not to ask him questions publicly because they always got embarrassed. Why could we not cast it out? Stay there a second. The very fact that they asked this question meant that they were surprised that they didn't get the answer. We know that they were casting demons out in other situations because in Luke's gospel, Jesus, Jesus authorized this twelve 
in Luke chapter 9, and then Luke chapter 10, he authorizes a larger group of disciples called the 70, and they came back in chapter 10, in verse 19, and says, even the demons were subject to us in their name. So they'd had results. And now they're shocked. Why didn't we have results? So they're asking the question, which means they expected to get results. They weren't satisfied with, no, it didn't work now. And neither should we be. So they came and asked the question, why could we not cast it out? Before you go there, the answer Jesus gives is about as clear and about as succinct as he could possibly give. There's no theology in this. There's no, there was a very clear answer. Verse 20. And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it's about the size of a grain of salt, of the sea salt. It's about that size. He said, if your faith is only that size, and you say to this mountain, move up from here and, and, and go to there, it will, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. So what's the problem? Why does a seed not produce anything? Because it's not acted on. It's not planted. The seed has the potential. That's God's Word. But it has to be acted on. It has to be sown into your heart. So his answer is, because of your unbelief. So why do we not see more healings in the church? The answer is the same today. Because of our unbelief. Why do we not see someone like Denny healed? We talked about that a whole Sunday morning. I don't have the answer to you, but we can't draw the conclusion from that that it's not God's will to heal because Jesus just taught that principle. Let's look at another example, and I referred to this earlier. Uh, I referred to this earlier. Mark 6. Jesus comes to his own hometown. And he went from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. Verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. Now look, look at... See, here's what blocks or creates unbelief, is we have an image of God. And that image that we have of God either determines what we're able, willing to believe or it filters out what God says about Himself so that we don't believe it. And here's a great example of this. Here's a great example of this. And when He came, and many were astonished. Look what they say about Him. Where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom is this which was given to Him that such mighty works are performed by His hands? Verse 3. Is, now, so they're, they're saying, wait, 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 we have an image of him, and what we've heard about him doesn't fit that image. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters here with us today? And so they were, look at this, offended at him. Stay there a second. So much of the church today has this image of God that we just talked about. That God cares about our soul, He cares about our spirit, He wants to see us saved, He wants us to get to heaven, but He really doesn't care about the natural material things of your life. 
He really doesn't care about your body and your health enough to do something about it. Oh, sometimes he'll do special things, but not for you now. So not so you can count on it. That's an image of what God's like. And that image we have of what God is like will restrict what God can do in our lives just as the image that his hometown people had of Jesus restricted what he could do for them. Verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. That's often true today for us. Verse 5. And so now as a result, look at this, he could do no mighty work there except he laid hands on a few sick people. And that implies in the Greek minor sickness and healed them. What stopped what Jesus could do was the image that they had of him. So to try to interpret what God's like by the results has it backwards, just like that man with a son with epilepsy when he said, if you can, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, I'm not the issue. You're the issue. So we've got to begin to renew our minds to what God says about himself. And this is important for us to begin to get. So let's begin. That's what we're going to now start doing in this series. We're going to begin to look at what God says about himself. To do that, we've got to go way back in the Old Testament where God starts speaking about himself. And I'll say this over and over again. The only thing way you can know what God is like is what God chooses to tell us about himself. Man does not have the capacity to, 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 to understand what God's like unless God reveals himself to us. One of the things we may talk about is, and I think it's First Corinthians, Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about, about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. The strongholds he's talking about there are not spiritual strongholds. They're strongholds in our mind. Casting down imaginations. The word imagination there means a system of beliefs. It says that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So man's very capable of forming images of God and doctrines and teachings that block us from understanding God. Jesus said it differently. And he was frustrated. at the, the, the reason he was mad at the Pharisees is because their teachings about God were separate, keeping people God loved from coming to him. And so he says, he says, your traditions, the traditions of man, block our knowledge of God. And that's true when it comes to understanding what God says about himself in terms of caring about our physical body. And this is important because in order to receive healing, you have to be convinced, not in your mind, but in your heart, that it's God's will to heal you. As long as you have a doubt about that, it's impossible to fully trust and believe because maybe it's not His will to heal me this time. Maybe it's not His will to heal me. I know He may heal everybody else here, but it may not be His will to heal me. And without that confidence, because the Bible, Jesus said, you have to believe you've received it when you pray. And I can't do that if I'm not convinced it's God's will. 
So we're going to pick up now on the story of when God takes the people that He chose. God chose to uh, decided that in order to reveal to the world what He was like, that God wanted to display Himself in terms of a relationship with somebody. That's what God wants to use marriage as a way to communicate what His love is really like because it is a sacrificial love in a successful marriage. So God wanted the world to understand what He was like. So He wanted to choose a people that He could have a personal relationship with unlike any other people on the earth. And God knew that He couldn't just choose an existing people. He had to start from scratch. So God chose a man named Abram. And He made a covenant with that man. And I won't go through the whole story, but he, and out of Abram came Isaac and Jacob and, 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 and then uh, Joseph and then a whole nation. And by the time they come out of Egypt, they went in 70, they come out of, they come out of thousands of people. We know there were 600 warrior men, so you can only extrapolate from that how many women and children there must have been. So there may be a million, two million people, it's estimated, now come out of Egypt. I've taught you before on Sunday mornings. They spent, they spent over 400 years living in this idolatrous nation, which was also, though, one of the most highly scientifically advanced nations in some ways that may have ever existed. Those scientists learned how to do things that our scientists have not discovered yet, have not figured out yet. So they had medicines, they had ways of healing people, and they also, had, they also had spiritual things that they did, not of God, but through demonic things. This is the country, the nation, that God's people have been living in for over 400 years. And now God's bringing them out to reintroduce Himself to them. And we're going to pick up as He's brought them out. They've just seen God supernaturally deliver them with ten miracles that He did. And some of them had to do sickness that were brought on the Egyptians. And the final one is that killed all the firstborn. And now they've been brought out. They've, they've, got, they've seen God part the Red Sea so that the wall of water stood up on either side. They walked across it one, two million people on dry land. Then they saw their enemy come in to try to follow them and they saw their God swallow their enemy up, the fiercest army maybe on the face of the earth, right in front of them, defeated. And they were set free. And now they get out a little way and they're thirsty. Their canteens have run out. And now they come to a brook, a stream, and they want to drink. So we'll pick up in Exodus 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Their canteens ran out. So they came to Marah, which is the name of a river stream, and they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. That word bitter can also imply they were, they were, it, was, it, was disease, it was poisonous or it would cause an upset. Therefore, they, the name of it was Mara, which means bitter. And the people complained against Moses. What shall we drink? Verse 25. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he cast the tree into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, 
And there he tested them. Stay there a second. Now, Now notice the symbolism here. The waters will make you sick. Your body. Sin will make your soul sick. And enough of this water would have killed them. Enough sin will kill you. And God's answer was to take a tree that He designated and throw the tree in the water. And we know what the Bible says, that that Jesus was hung on a tree. So this is a shadow of the cross and the healing that the cross brought to them. But in this case, it was a physical healing. Because notice, we'll see God correct, connects the two. Verse 26, that's where we're headed. So this is, the, what, this is the, the statute that God gives them. If you will diligently heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians. That was their judgment. Verse 27. For I am the Lord who heals you. And that's the name of this series. We're going to break that down. For I am. When Moses was, when God appeared to Moses on the mountain to reveal to him who he was and what he was commissioning to do, he appeared in the burning bush. And he commissioned Moses to tell Moses to go back to the country he'd fled from and to tell the leaders that he'd fled from that, that he was the deliverer that they'd been praying for. And he says, well, they're going to ask him, ask me who sent him. And God's answer was, you tell them, I am sent you. I am who? No, I just am. In fact, the word Lord, when you see it in uppercase, it is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which just means the self-existent one. That is the appeal that God gives to his ultimate existence. It's God saying, I owe my existence to no one and to nothing. I am the prime mover. I am the big bang. I am it. Everything and everything that exists comes from me by my will and it exists for me. And that's the one who heals you. And actually, literally, it says, Jehovah Rapha. I am your healing. Some translations say, I am your physician. So God is introducing Himself to them. They've just come out of Egypt that had all the advanced physicians, all the advanced science of the world at the time, and God is saying to them, I am your healer. I am your physician. You know, if you go see a specialist today, one of the things they'll want to know is who is your primary physician? Who is, who is your physician? Next time, write in Yahweh. <laughs> God wants us to grow to the place where He is our physician. Think of what that means. Because we're just coming, we're still in an era, in a time when the very best of our physicians, and we've got a great one here who's a member here who's well-known and she is brilliant and has all the medical training, but they can only give us the best they know. 
And we've seen them sometimes stumble, they'll change what they... Because they're doing their very best, but they're dealing with unknown quantities. But Jehovah has all the answers. Jehovah doesn't need a vaccine. Jehovah doesn't need all these things. Now, I'm not talking about whether it's okay to do that. I'm just saying God's goal is for us to grow and mature to the place where He's our physician. Just imagine how that honors Him when we turn to Him as the source of everything we need. So how do we get there? By meditating on these things together. By beginning to build and renew our mind to who He is and what His will is and how much He loves and how much He cares about us. So God was revealing to them His character and His nature. Now, there are seven names that God uses to describe what He's like. There are a number of names that God uses to describe Himself, but there are seven that are considered His redemptive name. Redeem means, redemptive means to redeem you out of a situation or out of a difficulty or out of a situation. That God reveals through the Old Testament what He's like to His people. The very first one, the very first thing God revealed to His people about Himself is this. I care about your bodies. I care whether you're well or not. I want you whole and I want you well. Well, let's go a little further out. Let's go over now to Exodus 23. God's continued to reveal Himself. And what He's just told them is, I'm called you to go into this land I'm giving you. And there are people in there. And they worship foreign gods. They worship idols. And I'm going to give them into your hands. But when you've come in and you've conquered the land, you shall not serve their gods and you shall not worship the gods that they worshiped. But you shall worship and you shall serve me. Because you're my people. And then he picks up and says this, And so you shall serve the Lord your God. Stay there a second. If we were to go back, don't do that. If you go back to Exodus 20, it's when God's given Moses the Ten Commandments on the mountain. And the very first commandment, which is the foundation of everything else in our relationship with God, God says to them, this is the thing you need to know about me more than anything else. I am the Lord, yourself, the self-existent one, who brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And I've taught you before that the Egyptians worshipped over 2,000 gods, little images that they made, that each of those gods represented some supernatural being that would meet one of their needs. And God's saying, you shall not worship other those things because they're not real. But I am the true God. I am your God. I am the source of whatever you need. And I am the one that you shall worship. I am the one that you shall obey. I am the one you shall serve. And here's the benefit of it. And you shall serve the Lord, that's what Lord is, your God. And He will bless your bread and your water. See, we, 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 we pray over food and we bless it. But God says, if you serve me, I'll bless your bread and your water. And look at this. And I will take sickness out of the midst of you. God's pleading with them. If you'll just do what I tell you to do, if you'll just obey me, I want to take sickness 
out of you. See, if sickness is taken out of our midst, we don't have to worry about getting sick. If God, the very first thing God reveals to His people about Himself is, I don't want you sick. I care about your bodies so much that if you'll just do what I tell you to do, I'll remove sickness from your midst. Let's go to Exodus, let's go to Deuteronomy 7. Well, Israel didn't do what God told them to do. And in the intervening 39 years, well, in the intervening time, God brings them up to the edge of the promised land. Most of you know the story. Sends the spies in, they come back, and, and 10 of the 12 spies says, we can't do it because there are giants in the land. There's too much. I don't care what God said. What we saw is too much for us to overcome. So we can't do this. And they cried and moaned and said, I wish God had left us back in Egypt because why did he bring us out here to die? That was the refrain that they gave all the time. And, and, and so God says, all right, because they say, we're, we just, we're going to die in the wilderness. So God says, all right, you're going to get what you said. You will die in the wilderness. But the children that were born in the wilderness are the generation I will bring in. So now, 39 years later, this next generation is at the edge of that same land to go in to fulfill the promise that God had made to them hundreds of years before that he made to Abraham. And now God renews with them the same covenant promises he made with their fathers 39 years earlier. And he says, he goes through a whole bunch of things, and he said, And so you shall be blessed above all the peoples, and they shall not make a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. Verse 15. The next verse. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases which you've known of Egypt, which you've known, but will lay them on those who hate you. Here's the third time God is convincing His people, it's not my will that you be sick. It's my will that you be well. If you will just obey me, if you will just serve me, if you will just do what I tell you to do, I will, re- I will remove sickness from your midst. I will remove sickness from your midst. We're going to go on next time and look at more in the Old Testament. I want to establish a foundation. It's all, how does God view sickness? Is it just something that is a human condition we have to put up with? Is it something that God sometimes takes mercy on us and says, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll have mercy on this person, but you've got to live with it? How does God see sickness when He looks at us, when He looks at sickness? Well, we see here, God doesn't like it. It's not God's will. Notice He said, I will remove all sickness. Not just this select group over here, but I want to remove all sickness from you, my people. We're going to see as we go forward that God continues that same attitude. We're going to look at King David next time. And David says in Psalm 103, talks about blessing the Lord and and not receive all his benefits, plural, which means there's not just one benefit which we get to go to heaven. 
And he tells us what they are. Who, who, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases. We'll look at Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 53, God's foretelling. Everything along the way is God saying to His people, if you do what I want you to do, if you, if you obey me, I will remove, I will remove, I will remove sickness from your midst. So now it's not surprising when Jesus walks on the earth. What does Jesus do more than almost anything else? Is He removes sickness from the earth from people that came to Him. And what we're going to see is that when He goes and He's scourged, when He's hung on that tree, when His body is pierced, He is also removing sickness from our midst. See, in the old day, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in the days when Jesus walked on the earth, if you wanted sickness removed from you, you had to go to Jesus. If you got to Him, you knew that sickness would be removed because He never turned anybody away. Why? Because it was God's will to remove sickness from their midst. But we can't go to Jesus physically. So God put Him on that cross, and on that cross He paid for our sins and He paid for our sickness so that now we can go to the cross, Jesus on the cross, and receive the same healing that you could have received if you were living back in the days when he walked on the earth and I've gotten way ahead of myself. Here's what I want to do. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, was not quite sure what to do with this point. But I'm not going to, at this point, I'm not prepared to have a healing line. And I'm going to tell you why. I want to help build your faith. We do it too quickly. And then what happens is either you, somebody gets healed and because it was some wonderful anointing the pastor had, which I don't, then, 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 and, and, and then we can lose it. But if I can help bring you to the place where it's, I'm sure most of you believe this here, but it's getting it from here down to here. It has to become a part of you where you know it. You know it's His will where you have no doubt that it's His will. That's why Jesus said, if you believe in your heart and not doubt, if you believe, say with your mouth, but not doubt in your heart. If you say into that mountain, be removed and not doubt in your heart. This is where we struggle. We believe in our head, but we've not driven the unbelief. I believe, the Father said, help my unbelief. So I'm not, you can pray for yourself on your own. I'm not going to pray for you tonight or have you pray for each other. I want to build a foundation to build our faith so that when, in, when we do that, there'll be power in it. Let's pray. Father, we're sowing seeds. Again, many of those that are watching online tonight and, and many of those that are here tonight have, have heard the word of healing, have, have in some cases taught it, and believe it. And Father, wherever each one of us may be individually, I believe it's your will that you bring your church together and that we begin to combine our faith together. Because you talk, Jesus, about where two or more on earth agree on anything. It's the power of unity, the power of agreement. Because regardless of what any one of us may believe individually, your church as a whole is still in unbelief about what you want to do 
and what you're willing to do. And we plead with you tonight because we're living in a world that's desperate to know that you're real, that's desperate to know that you care about every aspect of their lives, that's desperate to know that the God that we proclaim and the God that we serve is a God who delivers and sets free and heals and restores. God who cares about our life here, let alone our life on the other side. And so, Father, help to open our eyes as a congregation of believers tonight to begin a journey together so that what we know in our mind will begin to seep down into our hearts. And when we finish this study together, we will have a confidence in you and in your character and in your nature. And so we just speak those words by faith tonight and thank you for them in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Maybe you're, I know everybody here pretty much, I can't see in the back tonight. Maybe you're watching online tonight and you've never, you've never, you don't have a confidence tonight that if you life was required of you tonight while you're asleep or tomorrow morning when you wake up that you have a confidence of where your soul and your spirit would go. The Bible is very clear that when you close your eyes here you will open your eyes in one of two places. You're either going to go to be with God in heaven or you're going to be dragged down into hell and we may talk about that another time. And it's forever. It's for eternity. There's no middle place that some denominations teach called purgatory. That's not in the Bible. You will either go wherever you're going when you die. That's where you're going. And you're going there forever. But God's provided a way so you can be certain. You can have a confidence in your heart. And Jesus said it this way. He said, I, speaking of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets into heaven unless they come through me. What does that mean? Through a relationship with Christ. Jesus said elsewhere, in order to get to heaven, you must be born again, a second time. It has to be a fundamental change in your nature and character that's so different, it's like a new life. It's like being born again. I want to help you with that tonight if you've never done that. I want to help you with that tonight by leading you in a very simple prayer in which you invite Jesus Christ into your heart. Tonight, He is standing at the door of your heart. The Bible says so, knocking, seeing if you will just open the door and if you will let him come in. He loves you so much. He wants to come into your life. And you allow him to bring this change into your life, to bring his peace, his joy, and his assurance of where you will spend eternity. You say, well, pastor, what must I do? I want to lead you in a very simple prayer. And it's simple because he's done all the work. And this prayer, you're just, as best you know how, you're opening the door of your heart you don't need to even understand it and letting him come in. So if that's you, I would ask you to just pray this with me. You don't have to kneel. Just repeat these words with me. Mean them as best you can. I'm going to ask the congregation here tonight to do that also. Say this with me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. 
You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I take my life as it is right now and I put it into your hands to be Lord. Fill me with your Spirit that I may live strong for you for the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me this much. Amen. Now, if you did that for the first time or maybe you made a recommitment of your life to the Lord tonight, that's wonderful. But I want you to do something.